Our scripture reading today is from the books of Daniel and the gospel according to Matthew. First, from Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13, 14, and 27. The Son of Man is given dominion. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. And now from the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. The visit of the wise men. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We've been studying during the Advent season the offices ascribed to our Lord Jesus. That's, uh, I know, sounds formal and theological, but uh, biblical theologians, in looking at what the Bible teaches about Jesus, have noted back since the early church that he came in fulfillment of the promises to Israel that God would send a prophet even greater than Moses, that he would send a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and that he would send a Davidic priest who would rule not only over Israel, but over all nations. And we have seen in the opening verses of Hebrews, and then last week, particularly in Hebrews chapter four, uh, the pictures of Jesus as the prophet, the one who speaks on God's behalf to us. We need a prophet. We need to know whether or not there is a God, and if there is, who is this God? And what does he want of us? And so the prophet is the one who comes to the people and speaks on behalf of God. Once the prophet speaks to us, once we have heard, God's word to us, we realize that he made us in his image after his likeness for intimate, loving friendship with him. And we realize the degree to which we have failed to love him and to love one another as he has called us to do. And so we realize, having heard from the prophet, that we need a priest, someone who is going to represent us to God. And he's going to 
offer there a sacrifice on our behalf and reconcile us to God. And so we saw last week that Jesus is not just our great prophet, but our great high priest. And now this morning, we come to the final one. We need, if we are going to be God's people, someone who will lead us to the end of our journey, someone to whom we are able to look to rule and reign over us. Not something that Americans like to hear, but something that most people throughout most of history and many people still today realize the need of and just hope to have someone ruling them who is loving and just and righteous and merciful. So we want to look this morning at this final picture of Jesus as our great king. And I'm going to this time be focusing on the rest of chapter 1 of Hebrews, verses 4 through 14. But we will start reading again with verse 1 and read the entire chapter. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes the angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The word of the Lord. Father, don't let me speak in a way that is unfaithful or unworthy of your son, our glorious king, in whose name we pray. Amen. It's hard for us Americans to really get our minds around this idea of Christ, our 
great king. We sang of it just a moment ago, so powerfully and beautifully, and I could tell that it was moving to us. But I think for most of us, when we really sit back, we're not gripped by the idea of a king, because after all, we're, we got rid of kings a long time ago, didn't we? That's what our revolution was about. I, I enjoyed very much years ago the first, uh, the first installment of The Crown. It began boring me after the first year. But the first year was fascinating to me, partly because it took us inside this, this royal family. Uh, and, and I was a kid back then when Charles was um, Charles's age. And uh, so I was thinking of things that I remembered from childhood of reading about the royal family. But I don't know about you, those of you who watched it, but it would just, I'd start laughing at the way that everybody, you've got to just walk this way and then, you know, back out here and don't step, don't step there and don't say this and don't be the first to reach out your hand. And I'm thinking, good grief. These are just people who sweat and strain and shower and go to the bathroom. And, you know, they're just like all the rest of us. These are not little deities who've come down. And I'm thinking, thank God I didn't, I wasn't raised in that. And yet, when I really think in terms of history, we've lost something as well. Not in the sense of needing kings to lead us, although <laughs> right now, well, we won't go there. Um, not for the political reasons, but because we're creatures who don't really know how to worship. Worship comes from worship. It is giving praise to one who deserves it because of who he is. I, uh, a few years ago, was I used to do a lot of mission trips uh, when I was at Cedar Springs. They'd let me go overseas about eight times a year. And if you'd put up with me as long as they did, you'd realize why they wanted me to go on mission <laughs> trips eight times a year. But uh, one of the last trips I went on was to Indonesia. And we were in South Sulawesi uh, and, and going around to try to open doors for a particular mission. It was a Muslim area, and so you needed to be very careful and get permission. So we had to go see this king of a little area. And it was, uh, you know, we got all the directions when you go in. This is what you do, you have to kneel, you have to stay down, you can't be higher than he is. Uh, if he hands you something, it, you've gotta receive it with your right hand, not your left. Anything that's handed back must be with the right hand. All these little rules. And you know, so we're trying to make sure we do everything right. And then we went in, and it was all we could do to control ourselves because in front of his little throne, he had a great big tapestry with a little mermaid on it, which I, I just, <laughs> Um, I'm not sure the story on that, but nonetheless, he was king of that area, and we had to give him the, the honor that was due him. Now, how often do we come to worship remembering that we are coming into the presence, not of a king, but of the king of kings and lord of lords? 
the great, majestic, glorious one. Yes, he's our father. But even in our country, when you see, I always think of the pictures at Kennedy's funeral of his children and of little John saluting his father. That was his daddy, but he was paying him the proper respect. And so as we look at this, I want to encourage you to think, do I begin to grasp even the outskirts of this great truth when I come into worship or even when alone I go into the presence of the living God and beyond that, if I'm his, do I realize I live in his presence? There are four moves that the author makes that I think are pretty clearly identified And all throughout, all that he's doing is quoting Old Testament scripture to prove his point. He's showing how Jesus fulfills. These are all quotations. And he shows that first of all, Jesus bears the name of the king of heaven and earth. All throughout here, he's going to contrast Jesus with the angels. Why? Well, because To the the old covenant people, angels were not like our vision that's largely formed by medieval paintings, the sort of Botticelli, little cute cherubs, you know, you just want to pinch them. Um, No, no, in the scripture, angel, angelos, means messenger. And these were messengers coming from the presence of God, bearing the reflected glory of the living God. And whenever they appeared to people in the Old Testament, they fell on their faces before them. They wanted to worship them. Remember, even in in the Revelation, John, who had known Jesus, when the angel spoke to him, John fell down and the angel had to say, get up, don't worship me, I'm a creature like you. But these glorious creatures are just that. Creatures made by God to accomplish his purpose. And so he's contrasting and saying, not like the angels, but this one, Jesus, has been given a name that is above every name. Listen to how he says it, verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So what is that name? To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now, you may be thinking, well, wait a minute. If he's the eternal son from glory, how can the father then say, today you've become my son? I believe that what we are seeing in these passages is we are seeing into the throne room of heaven where the Son, having laid aside his glory, having come and joined himself to us, and having received at his baptism that heavenly message, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, having received again on the mountain of transfiguration that powerful word, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. Now, having accomplished our salvation, having 
embodied Israel in full obedience for the people of God, having offered himself in the place of his ancient people and all of us. He now returns triumphant into the presence of the Father. And this is like the celebration where God is saying, here he is, this is my son, he has done it. Brothers and sisters, when you and I gather to worship, it's supposed to resonate with that moment. It's supposed to be this moment of incredible revelation again where we see the splendor and glory of this one. I said it the other day, but I, you know, I, from time to time, and especially preachers I hear say it, when I get to heaven, I want to ask the Lord about, you know, the relationship between sovereignty and free will. And, you know, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, John, who had known Jesus and even been like a little brother who, when they reclined at table, kind of leaned back up against him to talk with him. When he saw the glorified Lord in the revelation, he fell on his face like someone who was dead. This is the one who has been given the name that is above every name, that, as the Apostle Paul wrote, at the name of Jesus. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. A name above every name. Along with it, then, he says, that's in the first two, verses four and five, then verses six through nine, we see that he's been given a dignity vastly above that of the angel. His dignity is overall. How does he say that? Verse 6. And again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. He's telling the angels before whom we would fall down, want to worship. He's telling them, let you bow down and worship him. He makes his angels winds of fire. That's what they are. They're messengers sent to us. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O oh God. Someone says to you, where in the Bible does it actually say that Jesus is God? Of the Son, he says, your throne, O oh God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness, the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness, hated wickedness, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Again, do we speak of him that way? Do we think of him that way? Sometimes because he is our elder brother and because he did give himself for us, it's easy for us to have too small a view, to treat him as though he were our twin instead of our elder brother. The dignity of the Christ. And that moves right into the next passage which, in which he speaks of his power. He has the power of the king of heaven and earth because he says, through you, all things were created. Listen. Verse 10. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you'll roll them up. Like a garment. The power of the Christ is the power of God himself. And our thoughts of God can easily be we, we always maintain the glory, the transcendence, and the imminence because he joined himself to us in Christ. But brothers and sisters, 
God isn't just a great big version of us, the biggest being, the most powerful being. God is the source of being. He is holy, therefore he is other. He is personal being, but he is being beyond what we can describe. And every time we start talking about God, we reduce in size. We have to, to speak of God. But even the scriptures, when it speaks of God, must speak metaphorically, use pictures, relate to things that we understand. But God is always more vast and glorious in his name, in his dignity, and in his power. I look at the situation in Israel right now. I think about people on the border of Ukraine and even in Kiev. I, I, I think of the, the horrors going on in so many places around the world and it's easy to think that everything is out of control. But it isn't. There is a great mystery here. Do I think that God desires those people to be, I'm not even going to go there. Because God, in his word, sometimes says, you thought I wanted you to sacrifice your children? Such a thing never came into my mind. So we have to be very careful. But what we do know is this, that all power, rests with the one who holds all things in his hand and at the right moment he will bring it to pass. I've told you before one of my favorite commentaries on the book of Revelation is a little book by Eugene Peterson called Reverse Thunder and in that book he describes this great moment of Armageddon that all of history's waited for and all the books that have been written, all the movies, you know, we want this great cataclysmic final battle and he says you get to it and and Satan and his armies surround the saints and now here it's going to come and in a verse and a half it just says then God sent fire from heaven and destroyed them through Satan into hell Peterson said if you went out for popcorn you missed the whole thing <laughs> why because God is sovereign Nothing is beyond his control. And he is using even the most broken, awful things that are against his purposes and will as stated for us. He's turning them all in the end. And I'm not trying to make some cheap theodicy here where it's the best of all possible worlds. No, it isn't. But in the end, God is going to work all things together for the good of those who love him who are the called according to his purpose, and he will get glory. And the final picture is he has the dignity, I, I'm sorry, he has the destiny of the people of God, and he has the destiny of the king of heaven and earth. And he says it like this, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they, the angels, not all ministering spirits, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So, two points that I want to make. First, I've been trying to make. Whenever we worship alone, in our families, or together, while on the one hand, it is our beloved elder brother calling us to come into the presence of our Father who loves us and who, like the Father, in the parable of the prodigal, runs to meet the prodigal and puts his robes on him and his sandals and a ring on his hand and sets a banquet. Nevertheless, that father is the great and glorious Lord of all. 
And Jesus Christ shares fully as the one God in three persons, mystery beyond our comprehension. It's the best way that we can speak of what the Bible teaches. But Jesus fully shares that name, that dignity, that power, and that destiny. So we are worship him like that. Second point is this, and it's too easy to miss, but it may be the most important thing for us to hear. Because I think all of us who are Christians would agree with all of that. Our problem is execution. <laughs> we forget it. We get too casual, too careless. But we believe it. We know it. But how often do you and I remember this? I love that, that Daniel passage that Tom read, our first lesson Daniel, from Daniel 7. Daniel has a vision of the throne room of God and of, of these enemies of God portrayed as beasts, which then come over to us in the Revelation. And, and then God breaks their power, and one comes like the Son of Man in the clouds of glory, and to him is given all power. And what Jesus, when he stood before the high priest at his trial there before he was sent on to Pilate, when the high priest said, tell us once and for all, are you or are you not the Christ? Jesus quoted Daniel 7. He said, you have said so, and I tell you, you shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory. And the high priest tears his robe and says, you've heard it yourself. We finally got him. It's blasphemy because he's claiming to be that glorious figure. Now, didn't I already make that point? Ah, if you go across to verse 14, he says, and all that that is given to him is given to his people. All that is true of him is now by God's grace true of the people of God. I praise God for regeneration, being born again. And when I was raised in Baptist circles, that was the great emphasis. It was all about you must be born again. And we must, those are Jesus' words. But that's not the whole story. I praise God for justification by grace through faith. That's the great reformational center. And it's been recaptured again in fresh and beautiful ways in our day. And by God's grace, we are justified by, by grace through faith. But that is not the center of the story. There is only one all-encompassing description of our salvation in the entire Bible. And it is in Paul over and over and over and over again. How often does he say, just in the opening of Ephesians, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, you were chosen in Christ, you were loved in Christ, you were redeemed in Christ, you live in Christ, you are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. In other words, everything else, regeneration, justification, sanctification, adoption, these are all simply threading out descriptions of what is ours because of union with Christ. If I am in Christ now, 
then everything that's his is mine. He has, in his glory and his grace, joined us to himself. That was his great high priestly prayer in John 17. Father, just as I am in you and you are in me, may they be in us so that the world will see that you sent me. That's what the church is to be. That's what the Christian is to be. We are to be in Christ. Everything then that he says here, the author of Hebrews of Jesus, the New Testament says in different places about you and me. He says, I haven't given, you know, we think of, well, I'm lower than the angels. I was created a little lower than the angels. But then it says, but crowned with glory and honor. And so in Christ, I've received not the name of an angel. The angels' names that we have in the Bible all point to God. Gabriel means God is great. Michael means who is like our God. El, El, they end in El, which is God in the Hebrew. But we have been given the name sons and daughters of the living God. He doesn't say that to angels. Hollywood's wrong. You don't get your wings when you die. <laughs> Something vastly more glorious. You get the name that is yours. Even now, it's not when you die. It's now the moment that he joins you to himself. He looks at you and you may still see all the brokenness and stuff that makes you sick. But he now has chosen to look at you, to look at me, and to see us in Christ Jesus. And so he sees us as those who bear his name, his sons and daughters, who bear his dignity. He says to the son, he said, come, sit on the throne. What does the son say to us? Those who endure, those who conquer, will sit with me on my throne. And more than that, brothers and sisters, the apostle Paul, in that mysteriously glorious verse toward the end of chapter one of Ephesians, says that even now, those of us who are in Christ Jesus are seated in heavenly places. How can that be? Because we're in Christ now. The kingdom that is coming in its fullness and glory has already begun to come in Christ. And as we are joined to him and as we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, and begin to live that out, all of these things are true of us now. The name, the dignity, the power. What did we get at Pentecost? The Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church. Jesus' promise was you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The same Spirit that empowered Jesus in his earthly ministry is given to you and to me. And I love the Greek word that describes the power. It's dunamis from which we get the English word dynamite. It's power. And when you and I feel so incredibly weak, it's because we're not, I think, using the means of grace given us by God. Prayer, meditation, study, time with the people of God, service, those things that clear out the spiritual arteries and expand the spiritual lungs and get us on our feet, living in the power that's been given to us. And finally, we share the destiny. We've already begun to taste and see it. The presence of the future in Christ is here. 
but it's not yet all that it will be when at last he comes and consummates human history. So don't ever think of yourself as someone who somehow missed it. I'm 75. I'm tempted at times to look back and say, the best days are back there. But if you're in Christ, it's hardly even begun. The best is yet to be, and we taste and experience it now because all that will one day be true of us is true of us today. And it will at last be consummated. So realize, whoever you are, how much he loves you and what he sees when he sees you as his beloved child, as one who bears his dignity, as one to whom he has given his power, and as one who shares the destiny of Jesus Christ, our great Redeemer and King. Father, thank you that you have given us above and beyond all that we might ask or dare imagine. Your plan for us is so much greater than all our little schemes that we try to get you to join. And I pray that wherever we are this morning, whatever we're going through, whatever we're facing, that we will realize in some small measure at least the glory of what you've given us in Jesus Christ, our prophet, our priest, and our King.